Well, good morning and welcome to Redemption Church. Redemption Church is 10 congregations throughout the state of Arizona. We're all together, one church, just in separate places. And we're thrilled that you're here with us in Gilbert. If you're joining us on a live stream, glad you're here. My name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're just really looking forward to a great morning together. If you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, that is the passage that Neil read for us just a moment ago. Um, and if you're not, for, if you never met Neil before, he's the boss. He's the person who's in charge around here. So he's one of our elders and uh, has been at this church for a long time. One of my favorite people on planet Earth. So John chapter eight is where we're going to be. If you have a Bible open there, we'll put the text up on the screen so that you can follow along with us as well. Um, the one thing just to be keeping in mind as you're turning there is that Easter and Good Friday, so April second, April fourth, two two really important dates on our calendar that are coming along. We're really excited. Um, the team's been working. Really really hard to put together both of those days where we celebrate the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So no two bigger dates on our calendar and uh, thrilled what we're going to be able to encounter. Uh, baptisms, especially on Easter, are going to be phenomenal. So you want to make sure that you are, one, making, making sure that you're here, but then also be inviting people uh, to be here on that date. The other thing that's really important is that today um, uh, is Connor's birthday. So Connor was leading us in worship. Yeah, he's... Uh, he's He's 25, so he's going to rent a car right after this. So um, if you see him, just pinch his cheek or something. Tell him that you love him because uh, we do love Connor. He's a great guy. John chapter 8. So the question that we've been wrestling with uh, in this section of Scripture and that John is taking us to, uh, for us to wrestle with, what's the difference between a real faith in Jesus? Like, meaning, what's the difference between a genuine faith or trust in Jesus um, and one that's not? What's the difference between believing in Jesus, or like we've been saying around here, believing into Jesus, uh, or simply just believing something about Jesus. And last week, if you were with us, what John was saying and what Jesus was leading people into is saying a real faith is an abiding faith, a faith that dwells or makes its home in Jesus, the Word of God, through every circumstance, through every season in life, whether I feel like it or whether I don't, an abiding faith, uh, a real faith, a genuine faith is an abiding faith. And what Jesus digs at in this text this morning that we're going to be looking at is this idea of traditionalism, meaning like these people, because they're of the lineage of Abraham and because they had kept all the religious practices of the Jews, they, they're basing their faith on that. It would be like people who think, well, you know, I grew up in the church or my grandmother was a Christian. And what can happen is that kind of spiritual traditionalism can get you under the assumption that just because you are around God's people, that you are one of God's people. And what Jesus is driving us to in this passage is that you can be a Christian traditionally, but not spiritually. And there's a huge difference. And what he's driving at is don't get caught up in the lineage or heritage, but to really inspect your life and how you live 
and where you make your home, where you dwell, because it's, it's not just about the truth that you know, it's about the truth that you obey, the truth that actually comes out of your life. So the section we're going to look at uh, this morning, um, it's, it's long, it's one of the most difficult in the whole book, um, and I've been um, trying not to preach as long as I have been. So this is going to be good, this is going to be great, no problems here, um, but we need to pray and just really ask God for, for help. And this morning, when I was looking this over, God gave me a little alliteration moment for this prayer. So I'm going to, I'm going to preach through my prayer thing here. Um, I'm asking God to do four things in our prayer moment here, that God would dislodge idols, um, God, that God would disarm our pride. Whatever is keeping God and what he has to say to us at kind of arm's length, like that God would disarm that, um, that God would disrupt us, that There would actually, God would start to churn things up in us. And that in this moment here, as we open his word, that God would actually disciple us, that we'd be discipled by Jesus in this moment. So I'm going to pray for for those four things. And we've been um, kind of taking a moment of pause and quiet where I'm asking and inviting you to pray. And that's not like a, that's not a gimmick. (laughs) Um, It's because I don't want this moment to be a moment um, that doesn't, acknowledge and include and in desperation depend on the power and the presence of God. So you didn't come to hear me. You didn't come to hear a person. You came to hear from God. Um, So we want to intentionally invite God into this moment that we would, in fact, hear from him um, and that we'd be changed because we had an encounter with him in this time. So no small thing. Let's, uh, Let's stop and ask God just for for that. Father, we need you. God, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. So would you come? God, I believe what you say about your word is powerful, is active, it's living. It's not just words on a page. It's the breath of God on a page. And so, God, I'm asking for you to breathe just over us. God, I'm asking for you to speak to us. And God, I do pray that you would dislodge idols and things that are in the way. God, I pray that you would disarm us from our pride. And God, I pray that you would disrupt the places where we've become apathetic or complacent, where we've taken you for granted and we've not taken you seriously in your word. And God, I pray that in your kindness, you would disciple us. That is that you'd shape us and form us. And God, that does not depend on me or my ability to speak or talk or any of those things. We, we, that only comes through your spirit. So God, we just are we're asking for your spirit right now. And I do, I want to extend this invitation to you who are listening, if you're in the room or online. Just take a moment and just seriously ask God to speak to you and speak very precisely to you um, in, this, in our time together. God, help us. Speak to us. We love you, Jesus. It's always and only about you and your fame. We ask these things in your name. Amen. John chapter 8, verse 37 says this. It's Jesus speaking to the people. He says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, you, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. So Jesus acknowledges their heritage, but he accuses their behavior, the way they're acting. He's saying, how can they be the seed of Abraham and at the same time trying to kill the seed 
of, of Abraham. And he identifies the problem right off the bat. He's already invited them to make their home in his word. And now the call is to have his word find a home in their hearts. But his word can't find any room in their hearts because their hearts are self-satisfied and self-righteous. They're already occupied with self. And so they don't have any room in their hearts for God's word. And they feel like their prior heritage, they feel like their lineage is enough and they're counting on that for their freedom. And so what Jesus is offering is not only offensive, they just don't have room for it. And he says, you want to kill me because my words have no place in you. He says, I know you're the offspring of Abraham. I'm not saying that you're not Jewish, and I'm not saying that you're not religious. I'm not saying that you didn't grow up with all the traditions and the practices. I get your resume, but here are the facts. You seek to kill me because my words don't find a place in you. They don't find a home in you. And they are impressed enough with Jesus to have him at a distance, meaning they want Jesus to be accessible, but not ultimate. Jesus, I want you close. I want you close. I want to kind of have this place, this kind of compartment in my life where I know you're there and I can access you when I need you. But ultimate, I mean, everything you want, like every room of my house, every part of my life, I don't need that. It's not what I want. I want Jesus to be accessible, but not ultimate. Verse 38, he says, I'm telling you what, you've, what I have seen in the Father's presence and you're doing what you've heard from your father. Jesus, again, he's trying to say, look, I've got a really intimate relationship with God, the Father. We, we talk, we're at home with each other. When I speak to you, it's from him. It's what he is speaking to me for you. And he's saying that the character of a man or a woman reveals their true identity. And so he has a better qualifying question for these people and for us. He says, how do you relate to the word of God? Meaning, how does the word of God actually find its place in you? So there's this tension that he has with the Jewish people here. It's, it's how he's received. It's how his words are received. Verse 39. And they say, Abraham is our father. Don't come at us about we're doing with our father. Abraham's our father. And he says, well, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. And you're doing the works of your own father. He, he goes beyond questioning their allegiance to him. He's now calling into question their heritage, whether or not they are truly Abraham's children. I, I, I've got three kids, and my kids, they, they look like me, particularly my middle daughter, Vera. Uh, my wife will always say, you are your daddy's daughter. She, she looks the most like me, or we have the same color eyes. She really likes ice cream and spaghetti and meatballs. I mean, those are the things that I love. She's got a great sense of humor and is very sarcastic, which I think is the most important quality about her. Um, but she's a lot like me. So th- th- my kids kind of look like me. They act like me. Jesus is saying, look, God has kids, and they look a certain way. They act a certain way. And he's saying, you don't look or act like your father. Because the true children of Abraham would be doing the deeds of their father, mainly trusting God, the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus. And they think that, they're, they, think that they are the seed of Abraham. And Jesus is saying... I am. And that's offensive enough. And, and Jesus right now should probably just quit while he's ahead with this crew. 
But that's not, we've seen, that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't do well with boundaries. And so he doesn't just lean into this with these people. He's going to blow the whole thing up. He's going to take the next step with them. They're offended because Jesus questions their identity. And he says, look, Abraham is not just the father of an ethnicity. He's a father of faith. Abraham is the one in the scriptures, if you're not familiar um, with Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons, I am one of them, and so are you. Um, Abraham is the one in the scripture who trusted God. And, and it was in that trust that God gave him a, a kind of vision of the future, of what the people of God would look like coming from Abraham. And Jesus is saying that's the work. That's what the true children look like. The work of trusting. That's what Abraham did. And, and what he's really driving at with these people is saying your ancestry and your tradition is actually what's diluting your understanding of that trust that Abraham had for God. It's what's blinding them from seeing Jesus and who he truly is. Jesus is saying Abraham did a greater work of faith, of confidence in God, not just tradition. You're holding on to tradition, and Abraham, his work was the work of faith. Just because you have these spiritual feelings, just because you jump through these spiritual hoops doesn't mean that you have spiritual life. And he's saying the truest and surest sign that you love God is that you love me, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Man. In the, the Greek, the language that John's using here, he's using the same kind of phrasing as an epiphany, when a, when a deity would reveal themselves, when a, when a deity would say, this is, this is who I am. And this whole section that we've been looking at the past couple weeks is really Jesus saying, how many different ways can I explain to you that I didn't come here on my own? God the Father sent me to you. Jesus is saying, I am God's most personal visit to planet Earth ever. I don't know how else I have to say this to you. In verse 42, he says this. He says, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I've come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? It's because you're unable to hear what I say. Jesus is saying, look, if God were your father, you'd love me because I came from God. And you don't love me because you can't hear my word. He's speaking to the fact that this proud heart, the pride that they have, it struggles with the word of God. Not, not knowledge of the word, but it struggles with being formed and shaped and molded by the word of God, by the spirit of God. And Jesus is in this crowd with these people, and he just says to them flat out, he's like, you can't take the things I'm saying. It bothers you. And if the things of God, if, if conviction just only makes you upset, like you hear preaching, you get into the word, you hear the things that God said, and it only offends you, it just upsets you, but it doesn't lead you to transformation, it could be that it's because you like the way that you live. You don't want to change. And so he's getting these people 
all riled up. And some of you, you've, you've fallen in love with, with church. You, you love the church, and maybe it's because of the music and the singing, or you encounter people that are happy and kind, and sometimes there might be somebody up here who makes you laugh or entertains you for a little bit. I mean, I don't, I don't know why, but I know that some of you, you've really just come to love the, the church, and there, there's something about this place and the people and this environment. It's attractive, and I'm thrilled about that. I think that's awesome. I love that. But one of the indicators uh, of the true attraction to Jesus, which is the point, by the way, is that when Jesus speaks through his word, you listen and you change and you actually hunger for that change. You, you see that the church, and I'll, and I'll just be really specific with us, the, the redemption church is not the point. I, I, if, you, if you love it here, if you love us, if you love our family, I think that's great. That's awesome. I want you to be here. I, I think, oh, that's, that's really good. But our job, our role, we exist not just to point people to ourselves, but to point people to Jesus. That's the point. And, 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 and for you to fall in love with just a, a, a place or just, just a people, good, not the, not the point. The point is always Jesus, and when you are attracted to Jesus and his word, you'll desire the change that only Jesus can bring you. See, this, this church won't change you, won't transform you. Jesus will, and he's the point. Now, the honesty of Jesus, it stings, but it really is coming from a place of, of compassion, He's trying to tell them about themselves. He's trying to get them aware. He's saying, look, you actually think you're following God, but if you followed God, you'd love me. And he's not saying you can't understand the vocabulary that I'm using. He's saying you can't stand the word within the word, meaning you can't stand the message or the meaning. Look at, look at verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you don't belong to God. Now, now, verse 44 in John 8, it's, it's one of the longest and the harshest verses in the whole gospel. And unfortunately, shamefully, this verse has even been used as an attack against Jewish people, even though it's located in the gospel that shows the love of God for the world by sending his son, the Jew, Jesus. So if you've heard that, that's not the point of this message. This passage is aimed at believers. If you go back to verse 31, these, these people who believe, but they don't want to leave their allegiance to their heritage, M meaning he's, he's driving to and he's speaking to not just then, but today. So hold on, buckle up. People who say, we believe in Jesus, but he can't be our single allegiance. We believe in Jesus, but he can't be our one and only allegiance. All right, you're about to be offended, so just hold on, okay? I love you. We need this. Jesus is confronting those of us who see his word 
an allegiance to him as an addition, meaning added on to our house, not as our singular place of dwelling. Meaning my first allegiance, my primary allegiance is to me or my politics or my country or my preference or my comforts or my safety or my security or my rights or my freedom. And the word of Christ, the word of God is like a casita that we have in the backyard and I'll go visit it on the weekends or when I need help. Now I'm not saying that politics aren't important, or I can't be a patriot, or I can't have preferences or freedom? Of course not. Don't, don't cancel what I'm saying here just because it's making us a little bit uncomfortable. This is the point, and this is what Jesus is saying, and it's what he's always saying. Jesus is saying, I am ultimate. I am supreme. I am everything. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm first, I'm only, I'm alpha, I'm omega, and everything in between. And if not, it gets worse. Because Jesus says, if you doubt my word, or despise my word, or my word doesn't have proper place in you, it's because your father is the devil. He's getting pretty serious now as he's talking to people. And and in John 8, he's facing some of the highest religious people, and he's telling them, look, based on what I see in them, he tells them that their father is the devil. Jesus is saying, look, the, the, the devil is the daddy of two things. He's your daddy, and he's the father of lies. You see why they killed him? I mean, these are the most religious people. And what Jesus is saying is Satan has kids and his kids go to church. Now, now Satan, if you're not familiar, um, he was an angel in heaven. Uh, in fact, the scripture says he was the highest angel, the most beautiful. And he starts to become arrogant. The Bible says that he was able to see his own beauty. So he starts to kind of feel himself a little bit. And then angel's job is to give God glory and praise. And while doing that, Satan became disturbed by God being higher than him. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 14, he says, I'll ascend above the clouds. I'll make myself above the most high. And so you've got this angel that gets proud. He's the most beautiful. And he's created with the intention of giving God glory. But he gets all caught up on himself and how he looks. And Revelation 12 says that the great dragon Satan was thrown down to earth with his angels and his demons. Satan is a word that means adversary. Devil means slanderer. And Satan and his demons are organized in a militarized way in which there is a desire to oppose everything of and from God. And one of the ways that the Bible portrays Satan is as father in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, it says, the prince of the power of the air has sons of disobedience. And so what the Bible teaches us about Satan is that disobeying God is not just Satan's desire or his job, but he actually parents people away from God. My wife and I, we parent our children to live a certain way, to act a certain way, to show up a certain way in the world. There's a, a forming and a shaping that we are supposed to be doing with our kids. And, and the word of God says that Satan actually parents people into disobedience. Uh, 
the will of God. And if an angel can fall, we must be willing to understand that sometimes people can come across as God's people, but they're really from another parent. Even if they show that they're gifted, you can be gifted and ungodly. The work of the devil from the beginning. I mean, if you look at in, in Genesis, the very first words are, did, did God say? Did God say? You see, the work of the devil from the beginning has been to sow doubt in God's word. Doubt in God's word about God. Is that who God really is? Is he, is he really for you or is he holding out on you? Doubt uh, uh, about God's word about you, about who you are. Doubt about God's word, about God's love for you. You see, Satan is the father of slander and distortion and of white lies and big lies. He's the father of, well, just this one time. And he's the father of, well, no one will ever find out. And he's the father of, no one can tell me what to do. And Satan is the father of you doing what you want when it's against the will of God. And Jesus says, and lying is his native tongue. He invented it. When Jesus says the devil was a murderer from the beginning, it's a reference to the perfect relationship between God and man that was slain, that was severed. The devil is a killer of trust in God's word and the killer of man's relationship with God and with themselves and with one another. John Calvin says this, he says, it's not surprising that Satan tries so hard to extinguish the light of truth for it is the only life of the soul. Hence, the chief and most deadly weapon for killing the soul is falsehood. The truth, the reality of God in the person of Jesus is the passion of Jesus, and it's what the devil hates the most. And if the devil can kill the truth of who God is, namely the person of Jesus, he believes that he can kill everything else that comes from Jesus, mostly life with God. And so Satan is opposed to God. And so when you become interested in God, Satan becomes interested in you. So your desire to know God more, you get on Satan's radar. You want to glorify yourself. You want to build yourself up. You want to live for yourself. Satan's like, that's great. I'm not going to mess with you. Verse 48, the Jews answer him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there's one who seeks it and he's the judge. So very truly, 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 I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And they just get fired up at that. They say, now we know you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. And yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. So who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing me, of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. William Temple says this, the claim of Jesus that if a man observe his word, he shall be freed of death is the claim of either a fanatic or a lunatic, unless it's true. Now, if you've ever been offended by a message or by a teaching, um, then you can understand how these people are feeling right now. 
Because when people are offended, um, probably not you guys because you're all more calm than this, but people retaliate. And when you retaliate when you're offended, that's typically when like the ugliest parts of you come out. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been in a thing and you've gone back at somebody who came at you and then later you reflected on that. You're like, what, where did that come from? Like, why did I say that? That was just so ugly. Like, why would I even say that? that that's the level that people are here with Jesus when they go back at him. There, there's actually like a little bit of racism that comes out. They say, they, they say, you Samaritan devil. They know he's not from Samaria because they just got done talking about like where he was actually from. And they're literally like demonizing Jesus. Samaritans were a people group that were hated by their Judean neighbors. And they said that they were a people who were like prone to idolatry and like prone to mysticism and like prone to magic. So they're, 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 they're an, an inferior race and they have like weird magic. They're like muggles, right? <clears throat> so some of you will know what that is, All right? I probably should have saved that for 710, but. Um, <laughs> what's interesting in this passage, though, when they go at Jesus with that, is that Jesus denies being demon-possessed. If you look at that real quick, he says, he says I don't have a demon, I'm not demon-possessed. And he's not Samaritan, um, but he doesn't address that accusation. He doesn't deny it. It's, it's, in that way, it's kind of a kindness to the Samaritans and anyone who's ever been treated like a Samaritan through the century because Jesus is the true good Samaritan, and he identifies with those who are pushed to the margins in society. It, it, it shows, really, the, the, the two beams of the cross. There's the the vertical beam of the cross, which is the exclusivity of Jesus, meaning Christ alone. There is no other way for us to access God except the person of Jesus as exclusive. There's nothing that can be added to it, nothing that can be detracted from it. It is only Christ alone by which we have access to God. The horizontal beam of the cross speaks to the inclusivity of Jesus. So if, the, vert- if the, the vertical beam is the exclusivity, it's Christ alone, the horizontal beam is the inclusivity of Christ, which means the gospel is good news to all who would believe. And the life of Christ shows that. In this section, Jesus confronts our, our greatest fear, which is death. It's the one thing we don't have an answer for. And it's the one thing that we're constantly trying to avoid. And Jesus wants to relieve us of that fear because he is the answer. And the answer is a pretty audacious promise. If you make your home in my word, if my word has its home in you, you'll never see death. This is why they think he's crazy. But he's not saying that you won't experience the physical incident called death. He's saying that for the person who is in Christ, death is irrelevant because death has no victory. Death has lost its final sting. Who can talk like that? Who can make these kind of claims? Only God. Only God. Verse 57, they said, look, you're not even 50 years old. How is it that you've seen Abraham? And he says, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I They can't take it anymore. 
This is the supreme self-reference of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Abraham was, Jesus is. Abraham was a man of God. Jesus is God as a man. There was a potential salvation in Abraham. There is actual and realized salvation in the person of Jesus. We don't have time to go into all of Abraham's story, but if in particular in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has to sacrifice his son. Isaac, it's a long story. You got to read it. And God provides a ram as a sacrifice in place of Abraham's son. And Abraham names the place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide or the Lord sees to it. And that ram in that story points to the cross of Christ, a substitution, a sacrifice that would take death upon himself that was due us. And so Jesus is not presenting to them a way that they can work their way up to God, which their whole life was based on that thought, based on that reality. If I could just work my way up to God, he's saying God has actually come down to you and I am God Jesus saying, wherever I am, God is. Wherever I am, that's where God lives. Wherever I speak, that's where God speaks. Wherever I call, that's where God calls. Wherever I act, that's how God acts. Whatever I decide, that's what God decides. Whatever I love, that's what God loves. Whatever I choose, that's what God chooses. Whatever I forgive, that's who God forgives. Whatever I reject, that's what God rejects. Whatever I suffer, that's God's suffering. When I die, God will die. And Jesus is making it crystal clear to them. Like, look, he's kind of done with his argument. He's saying, you have a life or death decision to make about me. And in verse 59, they make it because they pick up stones. It's interesting how this chapter starts with them picking up stones against the adulterous woman. And it ends with them picking up stones against the one who offered forgiveness to the adulterous woman. They say that it's blasphemy. What you're saying is blasphemy. And according to Levitical law, that demands death by stoning. And so the only one who can break up a heart of stone has stones lifted against him. They follow the scripture, but they miss the point of the word of God. And so for us, as we are done now, we have to go back to the promise that Jesus laid out for us in verse 31. He says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's, he's not saying if you have knowledge, you'll have freedom. Because the Bible says if, if you abide in my word, you'll know the truth, and once you know the truth, you'll, know, you'll have freedom. The problem is not our knowledge of the word, it's our lack of abiding in it, making it our home. If I invite you over to my home, which you guys can come over whenever you want, I'm not inviting you into the facts or the details of my house. If I say, I want you to come over to my home, I'm not inviting you to the MLS report on my house. I'm inviting you into my life. I'm inviting you into the way that I live. I'm inviting you into the culture of my home, the culture of my family. I'm inviting you in to love what I love to be about what I'm about. And so if the word of Christ is your home and it makes, 
its home in you. It not only convicts you, but it changes you by the power of the Spirit. It sets you free. Freedom, we talked about this last week, is doing what God wants for you. Abiding in his word is true freedom. Knowing what God wants for you is freedom. And so to follow Jesus, and this is the point, this is what John is just taking us to. To follow Jesus is to abide in his word. He's telling this people and he's confronting us saying, look, you don't like me because you don't like what I have to say to you. But when you follow Jesus, you see that his correction is kindness. And so you have to ask yourself as we get to the end of chapter eight, who's leading my life? Who's truly leading my life? Is it me? And I'm hoping that, you know, I can access Jesus or is Jesus ultimate? Because that's the invitation, is for Jesus to be ultimate in your life. Not a weekend experience, not something that you access when you just are really stuck, or you need to make sure that you close the deal, or make sure that the thing goes well. No, he said, I'm ultimate. I want you to make your home in who I am, and I want to make my home in you. And so are you willing to Leave whatever house you've built for yourself. Whatever comfort, safety, security, purpose, thing, whatever you've built for yourself, are you willing to leave that? Which, by the way, just so you know, is shaky and will collapse. And God says, I have a mansion of grace that I've prepared for you. Come and live there. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for your kindness to us. God, your kindness to uh, confront our way of living. Um, God, that does not make you ultimate. It just keeps you accessible. And so, God, um, God, we want to walk in your word. We want to dwell and abide in your word because we want to be a people who are free in you. And so, um, God, I just pray that right now, just as we enter into this time of communion, God, that you would just do a work in us. And God, that you'd make very clear uh, to us what are the things that, that, are, that are in that way. And God, might this be a, a real moment of freedom for us. And God, that those things grow strangely dim just in the light of your glory and grace. We love you. We pray these things in your name.